0: with a nod to Mother's Day. Let me start this way. I am the son of Carol Lee Huck. There she is. Um, she even got a little, a little signage on there to my dad, who she was dating at the time. That is my mom's high school picture. Beautiful, right? I was always proud of my mom. She was just struck me as such a beautiful, elegant woman. She still strikes me as a beautiful, elegant woman. If there is anything good or kind or loving that emanates from me, there should be lots more than there is, but to the the degree you've seen any evidence of those things in my life, they're because of that woman. And and I know I'm biased in saying this, but I really, you know, I I don't know that I could have, that there is a better mom than the mom I had. I've lived long enough to understand at this point that I was uniquely privileged and blessed to be her son. Fortune uh, uh, fortunate, excuse me, falls far short in describing what it was to be raised by my mom, to be loved to this day by my mom. I had dinner with my mom last night. And it's not just me that would say this. My mother is really kind of love personified. She learned it from my grandmother and not just to my family almost everybody that's ever come in contact with her i think people would line up and say no that's true she's she's a pretty special woman um you should ask my wife right like if anybody has a right to complain about a mother-in-law it would be the daughter-in-law and i don't think my wife would say anything but that woman is a unique blessing and so my mom who struggles with uh, copd my mom This morning, like Jana's mom, every Sunday morning, like Isaac's mom, is sitting home watching her son teach about the God that that she first introduced him to. And so, Mom, uh, happy Mother's Day. I love you. I will see you in just a little bit. We're in a series called, What If Jesus Were Serious? And we're asking ourselves that question, what if he were serious, in regards to his most famous teaching. What we know is the Sermon on the Mountain last week, or excuse me, over the last couple of weeks... In both his challenging book, um, What If Jesus Were Serious, Sky Jethani, in both that book, and when he unpacked, when he visited us a couple of weeks, Jesus' most famous parable, the story of the prodigal son, what we've discovered, I think, and he's pointed out so brilliantly time and time again, is that our primary design, the way you and I were made, men and women, our primary design and Jesus' primary desire In other words, what we were created for and what Jesus came to restore is our ability to be with God. It is of singular importance. Not to serve God, not to obey God, not to get things from God. We were designed for, and Jesus came to restore, our ability to simply be with God. To live life with our dad. In his presence, for no other reason, with no other agenda than him. Jesus is a means to no other end. Jesus is both the means to his end, to himself. This week, as I began to reflect on my mom, thinking about her and her life, my attention also drifted to a lot of other women who have been so profoundly influential and wonderful blessings in my life. And who, like my mom, I have watched carry the blessing and the burdenhood of motherhood so wonderfully. My wife, my incredible wife, my my life partner, the greatest single blessing in my life, actually, this is her high school picture. You know, it's funny. The reason when I was a kid I didn't realize how blessed I was was that when you're a kid, your mom just does what moms do, right? Like, they just do it, so it just seems normal. But you don't see it. But now, over the last thirty years, I have watched my wife—not one, you know—and uh, one day in, day out, raise four kids. My my wife has been a mother for over eleven thousand days. I, she never stops. I, I I counted this up, and I say it often because it just to me. I've watched as I sat on the couch that woman single-handedly make over ten thousand nine hundred school lunches. That's an actual number. Ten thousand nine hundred school lunches, which roughly equates to how many Mets and Cowboys games I've watched. (laughs) But unlike when I was a child, this time I I noticed it. I saw it. I mean, I didn't do anything about it, but I saw it. I, I, I noticed that it was going on. I took it for granted, but I saw it. And now I'm watching it one more time, this time with new eyes, the eyes of a father and a grandfather as I watch my daughter Courtney mother my first grandchild Landry and here's Court's high school picture don't get me wrong um, my son-in-law is everything his father-in-law wasn't he is both the alpha male that cooks and cleans and vacuums yeah I know he really does it makes me look terrible When I was a kid, and my kids were kids, it was rite of passage to take a picture of little boys following their dads with their play lawnmowers cutting the grass. You know that picture? Courtney sends us videos of Landry following her dad with her play vacuum all the time. (laughs) But even as great a husband as Ryan is, I can't help but with fresh eyes, with the eyes of now a father, which those are different eyes, See the burden that my little girl carries in this world. You can have the greatest husband in the world, but there is just something about being the mom where the responsibility seems to lie. I watch it with these new eyes, and it oftentimes falls like a blessing, but sometimes like a burden on my little girl. Full-time mom, full-time wife, just finished up her master's degree while having a baby, running children's ministry part-time here at Mendham Hills. And the reason I put all of their high school pictures up there this morning is to remind us that all of these women are not superheroes or superhuman. They once were, and though we forget, they still are, and I think most of us have forgotten this. In fact, as you're going to see shortly, I think most women and moms have forgotten this about themselves. They are very real, though seemingly unlimited, very real human beings, with very real limitations. And it seems like as I watch the women in my life that I I love, as I watch them bear the burden of what I think and, and believe, although I contribute to them mightily, unfair, social, societal, familial, religious, and cultural expectations, as they bear them, it seems to me that if we were created for Jesus, And if Jesus came to restore our ability to be with God, it seems to me that the women in our lives and the men and the children who love them, we've been duped into making this practically and experientially impossible for most women in the United States of America at least. The expectations, inadvertent though they may have been, the expectations put on them are borderline preposterous at this point, and I'm not just talking about mothers, And so this Mother's Day, I want to hover for a moment, I want to pause in our series, and look at that concept of being with God. What God made women for, what Jesus came to restore. As I reflected on it this week, by watching the women that I love try to live out these expectations, I began to think that, well, you know, maybe I just am with high-achieving women, and and maybe that's, that's not a shared thing. Maybe my experience is merely anecdotal. And so I began digging around. Um, And what I found was not an anecdote, but an epidemic. Maybe it will resonate with some in this room. Hopefully it will resonate with some of you and open the eyes of others. Because the evidence is everywhere, and I think every man, every woman, every child in the room needs to be aware of what is going on, likely in the seat next to you. Headline, and I have pictures so you don't think I'm making any of this stuff up. Headline, Southwest News Service, women just keep getting busier, study finds. Here's some interesting observations from what they discovered. 31% of women have less than 30 minutes of me time per day. 38% of women haven't had an afternoon to themselves in over a month. 50% of women, listen to the things women are willing to give up now. 50% of women have have been willing to give up a hobby because they didn't have time for it. 24% of women said they'd be willing to give up caffeine in exchange for extra time. Do you know what it would take for me to give up caffeine? Right? How about this one, gentlemen, 11% of women would dump their significant other in order for extra time. (laughs) How about that? Suddenly it became your problem, didn't it? From the BBC headline, why women are more burned out than men. According to a LinkedIn survey of almost 5,000 Americans, 74% of women said they were very or somewhat stressed for work-related reasons compared with just 61% of men. A separate analysis found that mothers in paid employment are 23% more likely to experience burnout than fathers. An estimated 2.35 million working mothers in the U.S. have suffered from burnout since the start of the pandemic, specifically, quote, due to unequal demands of home and work, the analysis showed. From the New York Times headline, there's a stress gap between men and women. They write, it's a common story, one we frequently ridicule and readily dismiss, for example, when we call women nags. Despite the growing sum of research that underscores the problem, women are twice as likely to suffer from severe stress and anxiety as men. The American Psychological Association reports a gender gap year after year, showing women consistently report higher stress levels. Clearly, a stress gap exists, Women do more unpaid domestic work than men. Quote, the disparity is not really news to me based on my training as a clinical psychologist, said Aaron Joyce. It's well documented in our diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. For example, the prevalence rates for the majority of anxiety disorders are higher in women than men. Which then, to no one's surprise, comes this news. U.S. suicide rates are rising faster among women than men. And of particular note to the demographic of the women, the two women in my life that I showed you, suicide rates have soared among middle-aged white women, and suicide among young women increases at fastest rate ever recorded. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. What are we doing to women? What are we doing? And if Jesus came to restore a woman's ability to be with God, maybe, just maybe, we this Mother's Day should be with the women in our lives. Jesus proclaimed, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And when he proclaimed that, he proclaimed it talking to men and women. Jesus declared, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble and heartened. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet the burden that so many of the women in our lives feel and so many, Mother's Day, so many this Mother's Day feel, it begs the question of every woman in the room and every man and child in the room that loves them. If both men and women were created for God and Jesus came to restore our ability to be with God, How can we get our mothers and our sisters and our daughters? Ladies, how do you get yourselves back to a with God place? Back to your father whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light? Let me start here because too often it's been attributed to the wrong thing. I want to start with how you were created and who you were created to be. Because this is not a design issue. Too often it's been said, well, you know, men were just created to hold up better. Women, they can't stand too much pressure. You know these kind of things. They're, they're, they're soft. They're, they're like delicate flowers. They crumble under the weight of our modern world. Maybe you've heard that. The church has often taught that. So, ladies, let me start with that one this morning. It's not true. You are not the result of inferior craftsmanship. Actually, anything but. May I remind you of your story? As creation unfolds in the, book of, uh, in the book of Genesis, this book of origins in the Bible, the God who himself lives in complementary community. Three co-eternal and co-equal divine persons compromising this, uh, comprising this one God. As God looks upon his creation, right that he repeatedly called good and good and very good, at one point he looks at Adam and suddenly he realizes there's a flaw in the, desi- in the design. Even before the fall, even before any apples are eating or, or, or sin enters the garden, there is a flaw in the design. It is incomplete, for God looks at Adam and says, the Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Now think it through. Of course it wouldn't be good for a God who creates man in his own image, a God who lives in coequal community, to see man alone. He realizes there is a problem, and so God quite famously says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Suzanne Burden, in an article that she wrote for Christianity Today, entitled, I love the title of this, The Power in Every Woman Reclaiming Eve's Place in History Means Claiming Our Own. Own." She writes regarding Eve's creation. She goes, let's see, it's not good for man to be alone, so I will make him a servant or a slave. Nope. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'll create someone who will be a slight help to him in the future. Not hardly. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'll make an azar, E-Z-E-R. That is the Hebrew word for helper. I will make an azar suitable for him. An agent of rescue suitable for him. See, what's been translated in English to helper, azar is translated helper, right? That's that's from the Greek, or excuse me, from the Hebrew. Let Let me be clear. She writes, God could have used a Hebrew word meaning female slave, but he didn't. He might have used any of the Hebrew words meaning wife, but he chose not to. God offered a strong word used repeatedly in the Bible to describe how he comes through for his people in times of desperate need. There are only two options in translating the word "azer" into English. Either the woman is a strong helper, as God is a strong helper, or she is a strong power. That is the proper contextualized meaning of azer. Someone who is an azer is a strong helper or a strong power who is able to rescue and save by strength. The full force of the original meaning of that Genesis verse might come out something like this. To to end the loneliness of the single human, I will make another strong power, corresponding to it, facing it, equal to it, and the humans will be male and female. Put that on your next job application or medical form under occupation. I am a strong power. For not only has God identified you as his image bearer, but he also chose back in the garden to identify you as a strong power. Nowhere in these these stories that unlock your identity do you find a hint of female inferiority or a whiff of male superiority. Instead, you find the beauty of an interdependent relationship formed by a God of relationship. Here in the creation story, in the primary passages, right, that God uses to define and describe who men and women are, we find something totally missing, a detailed description of a woman's role. Sure, it becomes clear that a woman will carry and give birth to children, but any other ideas that we get about individual duties or responsibilities are absent. And so that leaves a wide range of possibilities for specific calling on any woman's life. Rather than limiting us, becoming an azer sets us free. Even the short but significant list of things that the strong helper is not, there is a list of things that they are not, it unleashes each woman to her full potential in whatever situation she finds herself in. Here's a few of the things that an azer is not. Number one, a domestic servant. Think of it, Adam hardly needs a cook since they pick the perfect nutrition right off the plants in the garden there is no cleanup they live in the great outdoors and as far as clothes who needs them the bible says they were naked and felt no shame adam didn't need a servant at all but a strong partner you know as well as i do women do an amazing amount of housekeeping chores and 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 that they are more than capable in this area she writes it helps me to remember that god has given me the ability to take care of the things he's entrusted to me but he hasn't mandated that i must do domestic chores because i'm a woman It may be part of my weekly responsibilities, but it's not a primary key to my identity. Do you hear that, ladies? (laughs) Somebody heard it loud and clear. (laughs) I think there was an elbow involved in that, too. (laughs) Another thing, an azor is not, that it is not in the design. An azor is not defined. This is so important today, too. An azor is not defined by marriage or motherhood. Did you notice that Eve was a strong helper before she had sexual relations with Adam? Did you realize that Eve was complete? She was a complete strong power at least nine months before she gave birth to children. This amazing truth, the fact that God didn't use a word for wife when creating Eve, it sets every woman free to be the strong helper and strong power God intended her to be, single or married, mother or not super important on a day like today when of course we celebrate motherhood but inadvertently sometimes we send this unintended message to single and childless women that they are somehow less she goes on If I only had discovered this freeing piece of biblical wisdom in my 35 years of singleness, even now as I face infertility, I take comfort in knowing that I will always be an Azar. No matter my social status in life, God has a plan for each of his daughters, and we're defined by his intentions, not by our current circumstances. And finally, something something that an Azar is not. An Azar doesn't retire. There is no age limit on being a strong helper. A birth certificate commemorates the entrance of a strong helper into the world, and every woman's funeral reminds us of of her ongoing legacy. A woman is a strong helper from birth to death, no matter what her circumstance or situation in his life is, and she will be a strong power in God's kingdom until her final breath and beyond. And I might add, her usefulness is not complete when her kids leave the home. Her job as Azar is not done. So it's not a design problem. Then what is it? You know, it's interesting. Luke, he, he is this first century physician, and he sets out to document with great detail, I mean, incredible detail, the life and death and resurrection and ministry of Jesus. And Luke records an interaction that, I mean, if you just, if you just read the Bible and you go, why the heck would he write this down? Right? Like, why would you write this down? It, it, it's a very mundane story. He, he, he records a, a seemingly meaningless encounter that Jesus had in the home of some very good friends. And, and understand, I want you to see this, it's not a story about miracles. It's There's no healings or feedings. Nobody's walking on water here. There's, there's no factual evidence that Jesus is who he says he is in this story. In fact, if you step back, you'd start to go, why would you even put the story in here? Spoiler alert. It's another story about the priority of being with God. And when you read it, what you discover is that it is in the very mundane of life, in the daily seemingly unimportant choices of our lives, what we do with our time and in the hours that we pass. And this truth is applicable to both men and women, but it's a story about two women. And today I, I want our beleaguered, besieged sisters and wives and mothers to hear it Because it's about how our choices in the daily, in the mundane, will either make us or break us, bring us life, bring us death, and ultimately leave for you a legacy of greatness or bitterness. Luke says that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they had a plan, but it seems that Jesus, according to most commentators... Intentionally breaks off from the crowd at some point, breaks off from the rest of the guys, and he goes for for what would clearly be seen now as a divine encounter at the home of a woman named Martha. Now, some of you know that this is the same Martha of the family of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This is a family, if you know the story, that is very, very special to Jesus. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you might remember the story of Lazarus, Martha's brother who had died, whom Jesus would eventually come to their town and raise. This family is so well known to Jesus that when Lazarus is, is sick, before he dies, they send messengers to Jesus and they simply say to Jesus, the one that you love is sick. That's how deep the love for this family was. Now notice the detail. This is that family. But whose house is it according to Luke? It's Martha's home. It's not Mary's. It's not even Lazarus's it's Mary's home it's a woman in the first century who owns her own home can you imagine gives you a clue a little bit as to who who this Martha is right what kind of lady we're dealing with here if there ever was an azer this is the first century azer right now she has according to Luke a sister called Mary and as we're gonna see Mary is very different from Martha You'll see it right away. See, she's, she's Martha, she's the go-getter. Martha's the homeowner, right? And we see right away that Mary, right? What's the initial revelation of who Mary is? She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Jesus comes and Mary, Luke says, Mary sits at his feet. What did it mean to sit at somebody's feet? Super important to understand it. It meant that you were putting yourself under their authority wasn't just the position you took, it, was, it meant that you were, in a sense, yielding to them, submitting to them. Some of you know the story, in Acts, many of the people would go and sell their property and they brought their, the, the proceeds of their property back, and do you remember where they put it? They laid it at the disciples' feet, essentially saying, this is now yours, you have authority over my things, do it as, as you please. When Luke says Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, it's more than just a seating position, it's about her heart condition. She's doing two things. She's listening, and she's she's submitting. But What about Martha? Well, see, Martha, I mean, Martha's a doer. Martha is the take charge, let's get it done kind of girl. Some of you might remember in the story of when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus. You remember he was late coming to raise Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus took his time. Martha, when she hears Jesus is coming, Martha doesn't sit home. Mary sits home. Martha runs out and meets Jesus on the hill. And, and when Martha gets there, she's got some pretty tough questions for Jesus. Right? And I mean, Martha's mispractical too. Jesus says, listen, roll, roll, roll back the stone. I'm going to, about to raise him from the dead. And remember what Martha says? No, no, no. It's too long. He's going to stink. Don't, don't do that. Right? Martha's the practical one. Martha is the azer. She's the homeowner. And so Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. What would one guess Martha might be doing? Martha the azer was distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. Martha had a different focus. Martha's eyes were focused on what had to get done. In this case, in her mind at least, in her mind, she was distracted by all of the things that had to get done for Jesus. She didn't have time to be with Jesus. She was too focused, too busy serving Jesus. You see that? You see the with story? You see the prodigal son, older son, younger son? Same message here. There were expectations that Martha had to meet. They were cultural expectations, right? What the culture said had to happen when a guest came to your house. There were religious expectations of what needed to occur when a rabbi came to your house. And maybe most importantly, there were Martha's own expectations. The ones she placed on herself and her home and how things had to go and the way things needed to be. Expectations that nobody put on her but that she placed on herself. Are you hearing this, ladies? And it was under the weight of everybody's expectations, including her own. Which apparently her at least in the story initially, seemingly carefree sister Mary didn't share or bear. It was the weight of these expectations, those of others and herself, that led her to leave the kitchen and come into the living room, not to be with Jesus, but to compare and to complain. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I want you to reflect on this for a moment, okay? Enter this story. I never noticed it until I did the research on it this week, right? If in that moment you had gone to Martha and you said, Martha, why are you doing all of these things? She would have responded, I'm doing them for Jesus, right? I'm doing them because there's societal and cultural and religious expectations. I'm doing them because Jesus isn't here and Jesus would have expectations. But here's the question, right? She would have said to Jesus, I'm so busy, Lord, which she essentially does, and it's all because of you, right? But here's the thing, if it was all about Jesus, and Jesus doesn't care, which she seems to indicate, Lord, don't you care, right? If Jesus doesn't care, then why is Martha actually upset? Why is Martha doing all of these things? Because at some level, and I'm not sure she's aware of it, she's not doing these things for Jesus, She's doing them for Martha. It was about her. Meeting whatever expectations others had placed on her, she had placed on herself. Jesus never asked her for any of it. These weren't his burdens or expectations. He didn't put them on her. She either accepted them from her culture, her society, her religion, or herself, but they are a self-inflicted burden. They are not his, which is why Jesus responds the way he does. I, I, you, need to, you need to hear this with, with new ears. Jesus looks at her, and he goes, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. See, you have to understand the emotion in these words. In the Bible, whenever, whenever a word is repeated twice, it's done to add magnification to the word. Now, specifically, when a name is repeated twice, it's done for the magnification of Of love and emotion a name repeated twice in the Bible is almost always done by somebody with tears in their eyes some of you know the story of King David Israel's great King in the Old Testament when they come and tell King David that his son Absalom has been killed does anybody remember what King David says my son my son Absalom Absalom through tears he utters these words Jesus on Holy Week when he's riding into Israel he looks down at Israel and, and the scriptures say Jesus cries. And through tears, what does Jesus say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you. And Jesus from the cross looks up to heaven and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here is Jesus now. I do not think he says this dismissively as we often kind of like say in this story. Oh, Martha, Martha. I think Jesus' heart is breaking. And through tears, he sees his little girl. Sometimes now, as I look at my, my mother, my wife, and now I see with fresh eyes my little girl this Mother's Day, with all of the world's expectations on their shoulders, all the things that the world tells them that they have to be, the church tells them that they have to be, that I unintentionally have told them that they have to be, all of the things that they themselves have believed incorrectly about what they have to be, Jesus sees this woman that he loves way, way too much. And through his tears, he goes, Martha. Martha. And not in a lecturing way, but with a broken heart, he goes, you're worried and upset about so many things. Tim Keller, an oft-quoted teaching on Martha, says that you can tell if, if you're a Martha if one of a few things is true. First... This is for for men and women, but ladies, I'd encourage you this special day. If you have an inner turmoil rooted in being worried about way too many things, if you have taken on way too much, if you have put way too much on your plate, if you have believed all the lies of the age, the church, your culture, or or even well-meaning friends and family, that you have to do it all and be it all and achieve it all and look eternally young, Martha, martha you have so many goals jesus is saying you have so many ambitions you have this list of non-negotiables and and so many expectations if you find yourself just emotionally and physically and mentally empty because of all of these aspirations and expectations you might be a martha and jesus weeps over you this morning another sign you Get easily irritable with people who won't help you do whatever it is you feel like you must do. For Martha, right, it was Mary, but her frustration didn't end there. In fact, her agenda, which she didn't understand, but, but her agenda, which was really all about her and meeting others' expectations or her expectations, her frustration didn't end there. Because when she couldn't meet them, you know what she began to do? She actually begins to question the goodness of God. Don't you even care? To which I think Jesus would say, well, if he was me, he would say, no, I don't. But Jesus is a lot kinder than me. Jesus would say, I don't care about those things. I only care about you. I didn't give you those things to carry so you can put them down. I'm not here to be a means to your ends or fulfill your ambitions or someone else's expectations of you. Let them go. Ladies, mothers, and non-moms alike, if either of these things are true, these two things if they sound way too familiar they are warning shots across your bow may i recommend a woman named mary to you jesus goes on ladies listen to this he goes martha martha you're you're worried about many things but few things are needed or indeed only one only one only one God did not send Jesus into the world to allow his daughters to carry the burdens and the expectations that this world has put on them. Nor did he send his son into this world to help them achieve personal aspirations that they they have for their own greatness as measured by everybody else other than him. God sent his son into the world to restore your ability to do only one thing. To be with him. To sit at his feet to spend time with him, to have your cup refilled by him, to submit your lives and your dreams and your hopes and your ambitions and others' expectations to him. And if these things have not allowed you to sit at the feet of Jesus, then I hope through tears you will see, or through the tears of Jesus, you would hear him saying, Betsy, Ronnie, let him go. I didn't give them to you now come and sit with me jesus concludes mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her all the ambitions all the expectations all the things that you feel so weighted down by and with please hear this men and ladies alike one day all of them are going to find their way to a trash heap none of them Will last. They are all worthless. There is one thing that will last. There will only be one thing worth giving your life to, and it's Him. A couple of quick closing thoughts this Mother's Day. First, 2,000 years later, it's interesting. We gather to remember the life, to commend the life of Mary, the true Azar in the story. She didn't look it, did she? but the true power and strength in the story. And to caution ourselves about the life of Martha, the first century homeowner. Do you see that? Martha strived to be great. Today, 2,000 years later, we remember Mary. It was Mary's ability to, in the face of all of the same cultural and religious and societal and self-imposed expectations of her day, it was Mary's ability to go, I don't care. I'm not picking them up. Not only you, excuse me, not only that, you might not have realized this. This is a fascinating story, okay? Ladies, I want you to hear this. There's another story about Jesus visiting their home. A- a- and John, John writes it in, in chapter 12 of his book. He says, while Jesus was at their house, Martha served and Lazarus reclined at the table. How good a stereotype is that, <laughs> right? While Martha served and Lazarus reclined at the table, Mary comes in the room. Same Mary. At least most scholars believe. And she took an expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Some of you know the story. Remember, all of the disciples, they complained about this waste of money. What is Mary doing? And Jesus says, leave her alone because she's anointing me for burial. Jesus, in this story, had told his disciples over and over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Not one of them believed him. Not one of them understood, understood him. Even after he died, they still didn't believe. There was one woman in the whole world who heard Jesus and believed him. Not Matthew, not Mark, not John, not Peter. It was Mary. She heard and believed Jesus. She was the only one who got what God was saying to her. It was Mary. And why? Because she sat at the feet of Jesus. Ladies, your family needs that kind of wisdom from you. Your husband, your kids, our church, you are Azers. Sit at his feet. You need to understand. And finally, for all of us who who love them, our moms, our wives, our sisters, our daughters, can I encourage you to do two things. If, if the ladies in our lives are going to be who God created them to be, in order to sit at the feet of Jesus, they're going to need our help. And so we need to be part of changing the expectations and filling their cups. Number one. Uh, this is two seconds. You've got to figure out how to work it in your own home. Number one you got to change the expectations. My wife taught me the most valuable thing about her about two years ago. When I asked her for the 10,000th time, she was kind of in the kitchen grumbling, rightfully so. I was watching the Mets, and I asked that age-old man question, well, what could I do to help you? And she responded so brilliantly, she goes, I don't want your help. She said, I want you to bear the burden. I want you to feel the weight. I don't want to tell you what to do anymore. I just want you to be my partner. I I, I want this to fall on you too. That's for all of you, husbands, kids, daughters. Bear the burden, stop asking what it is you can do and start feeling responsible. And the second is, I I met with a a young mom the other day and we were talking about these things and she, she threw her tears Holding one kid in her arm with another one pulling at her her side said, my cup is just so empty, I just don't have anything left to give. Ladies, figure out what it is that fills your cup. Figure out what it is. It's not just about lowering expectations, it's about filling your cup. And when you figure it out, share it with those that love you. Husbands, sons, daughters, figure out what, what fills her cup and start filling it. I'm going to close with this. This is the crowd participatory part. If I had a cup, I would raise a toast to the Azers in our lives. If you've had a woman, any woman, that has been an Azer in your life, would you now raucously celebrate them?